as a continuation of what we started last week and we'll be doing for the next few weeks. I'll explain that in just a moment. I want to cover some announcements, though, uh, quickly as I can. Two weeks from today, we have baptism. <clears throat> so for those of you who have been thinking about that, the time for thinking about it is over. You've got to let me know really uh, today and, or early this week so that we could uh, uh, find out if you're eligible to get baptized. But that'll be uh, two weeks from today on uh, March the 8th. And on that day, in the morning, we will observe the Lord's table for the entire hour uh, of our worship time, and then uh, we will at 5 o'clock that afternoon have a baptism celebration, the folks being baptized, and then a dinner after that. So we encourage you to come to that and encourage uh, those who are taking this important step of faith by your presence and at the, uh, celebration, the baptism and the celebration dinner. So that's on uh, March, the, March the 8th. On March the 15th, in the afternoon, we have our uh, quarterly family meeting, congregational meeting, sometimes called business meeting. So for those of you that are members of our church, that'll be at 2.30 in the afternoon on March the 15th. That evening at 6.30, there will be the introduction to our ladies' ministry. So that's a, a packed day. Ladies, if you come to the family meeting and you're coming to the uh, introductory uh, meeting as well, then we apologize for putting so much in that. If you can get your husband to go to the business meeting, family meeting, and then you come to that, that would be probably a good idea. But nevertheless, as many of you ladies who can make it, 6.30 uh, that evening on March the 15th, we'll be giving out information about uh, the philosophy behind what we're going to try to accomplish through the uh, ladies' meeting. I will start that meeting off, actually, by going through that, and then I'll turn it over to the leaders of the uh, ladies' meeting uh, ministry. And they will uh, give you a calendar of uh, events, things that they're, they're planning to do in the structure of the ladies' ministry. So that's the evening of March the 15th. On Saturday the 21st and Sunday the 22nd, those two evenings at 6 o'clock, we're going to have the Living Last Supper dramatic presentation in this room. So think about uh, coming to one or both of those, and especially think about bringing somebody to that because it is an opportunity for folks to uh, hear the gospel uh, in a setting that uh, is different than coming to a church service. So think about how you might make use of that. That's uh, Saturday the 21st and, and Sunday the 22nd. And then the following weekend are our annual servant seminars, and that's uh, three and a half hours that we spend every year encouraging all of the members of our church to come and hear about what it is we hope to accomplish in the coming, coming year. This theme this year, as you've been seeing in your program, is back to the future, and the idea there is I'm going to spend half of that uh, three and a half hours uh, looking at foundational issues uh, that were established at the beginning of our church, reminding us of some of those. That's the going back part. And then the future part is the initiatives that, by God's grace, we hope to accomplish uh, going forward. So uh, if you can come to that, it would be an important time for everybody who's a member of our church. I encourage you to do so. That is on the uh, 28th and the 29th, Saturday the 28th from 10.30 to 2, and Sunday the 29th from 4.30 to, to 8, okay? All right, I think that covers our announcements. Uh, I started last week a series that I call The Story of Your Life. And the idea of that, as I explained last week, is because uh, one of my observations in ministry over many years has been that too few people uh, who name the name of Christ and who attend church and are involved in Christian enterprise, that too few of those people actually are actively engaged in the process of changing. That most people, uh, and it's my observation, frankly, that most people, and that's, a sad, that's sad that I can say that, but most people do not change. 
So as I was saying that, it is uh, too few times, uh, too infrequently, that you see people who are actually and actively and joyfully and intentionally engaged in changing. Most people simply take the approach that says, this is the way I am. And thankfully, I'm saved by God's grace, so I'm going to heaven. And when I go to heaven, I will be changed because I'm going to heaven. So we'll just forego the whole change process now is kind of the mentality. And the reason that's a shame is because it means that whole portions of God's word and God's intention for us in leaving us here are left undone. I mean, think about this. If all God cares about is heaven and all God cares about is the, the sweet by and by in the future, then why doesn't God just take us home now? You really do need, we need to ask ourselves, why has God left me here? And God has left me here for the same reason that God does everything. If you want an answer to why God does everything, there's always a ready and right answer to that. And that ready and right answer is for His own glory. So God has left you and me here, even though he has promised, if you've come to Christ, a place in heaven with him in the future. So I already know that. So to speak, that gig is already up. I already know the answer to that question, where is my eternal destiny going to be? It's going to be with the Lord if I've come to Jesus. But then there's the meantime. And I'm not to simply be biding time in the meantime, but rather God has his glory that he wants us to be actively pursuing. Well, how does that happen? Well, God's glory is, as you've heard me say, the expression of his character. God's glory is what he is like. And God, God's glory is seen in what he has made, because it tells us something about what God is like. And so the heavens declare, do you remember Psalm 19? The heavens declare the glory of God. So just looking at creation declares something about the character of God and what he is like. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is, all sin because we're not like the character of God. So God has left us here and he made the world and he is going to consummate the world and, and end the world. Everything he does, he does for the expression of his character, which is his glory. So why am I still around? To bring glory to God. How does that happen? Here's how. I said last week that God made, among all his creatures, he made a particular category of creatures, humanity, with a uh, special ability. And that ability is to image God, to reflect God back to God. So we alone, among all God's creation, are made in his image. We are able to reflect God's character back to him. But that image, those mirrors, have been cracked they are distorted because of the entrance of sin into God's world and the effect that that sin has upon us in individually. And so we are made to glorify God by reflecting His character. We were made in His image for that very, for that very purpose. But sin has marred the image and sin has separated us from God. So in the garden, when God said you can enjoy all of the trees in the garden, but this one tree in the midst of the garden you may not eat, and then the day you eat of it you shall surely die. And then when Adam and Eve partook of that fruit, they lived physically for many years, but nevertheless God was accurate in what he said. They died in that death is separation. 
And in that moment, those who had known fellowship with God, communion with God, were made for fellowship with Him, were made to reflect Him back to Him, were separated from Him. And now every person who comes into the world is separated from God. In his isolation then, humanity no longer sees his life with reference to God, Latin term quorum Deo, in the presence of God, but he sees a limited view of his life, his immediate needs, quote, needs, and his, his situations. And I said last week, without reference to God, then everything is different. Pursuits and relationships are simply to get by and to make ends meet without regard to the transcendent, to God and our vertical relationship with Him. We were made for God, but as a result of sin, we now live for ourselves. And each one of us then comes into this world with that perspective. And salvation is calling us out of the world into God and initiates a process of us becoming less and less focused on self and more and more focused on God and His character and His glory. That's what we're supposed to be engaged in. And if that's the case, then change is absolutely, absolutely necessary. But we come into the world with this self-centered perspective, each of us. And we pursue it. We pursue it for years. And if we come to Christ later in life, I came to Christ at 19. By the time I was 19, I had already formed a number of self-centered sinful habits. So you come to Christ and you've already, you've already formed a number of, of habits if you come to Him later in, in life. And even if you came to Christ as a child, by nature you are still focused on yourself. And the Bible says, teaches that you still have this sin nature, indwelling sin that you, that you battle, that we battle. And so we come into the world with this perspective before we are regenerated, before we're given spiritual life, and meanwhile we are affected by our environment, by other people, by the world. Those other people include our families, your family has contributed to messing you up. Everybody's family has affected him or her. And I said last week that my wife and I were, were blessed to come from wonderful families. We thank the Lord. We both still carried, both of us still carried things into our relationship that came out of our upbringing. That's true of every last one of us. So, to put it another way, you are, you are a distorted image of God by nature. You are pursuing your self-centered agenda by nature. But then that distortion is enhanced or made worse. And that pursuit of our own agenda is defined further by our, by our nurture as well. So you're a product of both, your nature and your nurture how you came into the world and then how you've been shaped in the world by your family, by the people around you. You're a product of both, both of those. Our relationships are supposed to be for the purpose of image transformation, Ephesians chapter 4. So to know who I am now, I need to trace my story, the story of my life, in order to get an accurate picture, though, of who I really am. How is my 
nature affected me and how have those around me affected me to make me what I am? Now, I said all of that has conspired to make you and me a mess, to mess us up. And then when people get married, we just compound the problem. Here's how. I mean, now two messed up people come together. And then, lo and behold, they have children who are conceived by and raised by two messed up people, and so it goes. Now let's all pray and just leave encouraged. (laughs) But that's the way the thing goes. And unless that process is arrested by the Spirit of God moving on the heart of an individual to draw him or her out of the world and to himself and then beginning this change process in which the individual engages intentionally and actively and daily. Unless that happens, you'll just carry around your baggage and pass it on to your kids and then everybody else is just going to have to deal with it. And that's what many of us, so many of us do. Now, thankfully... There's more to the story than that. I mean, there's sin and how it's affected me by nature. There's sin and how it's affected others. And then when those others come together in family relationships and in society, in the community, in the church, how we then adversely affect each other, all of that is absolutely true and contribute to making us what we are in a negative way. We can't have a full picture of the story of our lives unless we also understand that there's more to it, thankfully. So let me give you some passages that give us some of that more to it piece. Psalm 139. Psalm 139 and verse 13. You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Now, what a beautiful phrase. I praise you, Lord, that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. So there's all of that stuff that I just said that's true about sin and the broken mirrors and the effect of nature and nurture and all that. All of that's true. But thanks be to God, there's something else that's true. That I was made in the image of God, we were made in the image of God, and though the image of God has been marred by the entrance of sin, that image has not been destroyed. It's marred but not destroyed. How do I know it's not completely obliterated? Because Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6, Genesis 9, 6, which is after the entrance of sin, the entrance of sin happened in Genesis 3, Genesis 9 and verse 6, God says, whoever sheds man's blood will have his own blood shed. God instituted capital punishment. So God says, whoever sheds man's blood, to paraphrase, whoever kills another human being will be killed. That's what God says. And then God gives the reason why. Because that person has destroyed one who is made in the image of God. So in Genesis 9, the image of God still exists, even after the fall in Genesis 3. It has been marred, but it has not been obliterated. And God tells us that we have been fearfully, wonderfully, and I would add to that, individually made. So God has not only made us as humanity in general, made in the image of God to reflect Him back to Him, but He has made us individually and marvelously and wonderfully as individual persons, individual personalities and abilities and gifts. 
And when we come to Christ, we bring all of that with us. We bring all the baggage, all the sin baggage, but we also bring all this fearfully and wonderfully and individually made stuff as well. And the Holy Spirit of God takes that now, and in the words of my theology professor, Roland McCune, at seminary, the Holy Spirit energizes those gifts and abilities so that now they are no longer directed toward self, but directed toward God and His purpose. And that's how Dr. McCune defined, I think accurately, what spiritual gifts are. Spirit-energized abilities that God has given to each of us variously, but the Spirit of God energizes those now for His purposes rather than our purposes. And so in that, you have 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And here's what 1 Corinthians 12 says. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. And all of these are the work of the one and the same Spirit, and He gives them to each one just as He determines. So I come into the, wor to the world with a particular personality, fearfully and individually and wonderfully made. And that is part of my abilities and my gifting. And when I come to the Lord Jesus, then the Holy Spirit now directs those, those abilities and those gifts toward other ends. And there are all kinds of them. And each of, the, each of us has them. And then Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. For, all right, I've got to stop there. Because whenever a verse starts out with four, that means it's connecting to what goes before. And what goes before Ephesians 2.10 is the famous passages, passage Ephesians 2.8 and 9. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. Many of us know the, those, those verses. But then the next verse is, for because... So all of this is true that you have been saved, you have a relationship with God by grace, undeserved, unearned, unwanted favor from God. All of that is true for, because we're God's workmanship. God's doing something to refashion us. God, the workman, is remaking us. So I'm this broken mirror, this distorted mirror, and God is repairing it and remaking it. So here I am, this composite of my nature, sinful nature, self-centered agenda, separated from God. I come to Christ and now I'm no longer separated from God and He begins this reclamation project of repairing the broken mirror that I am. But that broken mirror is a composite now of what I am by nature and what I have learned by, by nurture. And yet God the workman is at work and He says, we are God's workmanship. And the Greek word translated workmanship, some of you know, is this, poema. So you could translate that. In fact, some have translated it. We are God's work of art. We are God's craftsmanship. This says we are God's workmanship. We are God's tapestry, some say. God bringing all of this together now and reworking the image of Jesus in and through us. Now, in all of that, that's who the story of my life. That's the story of your life. That's a full picture of who you are. That's what's called biblical anthropology, study of humanity. 
You're made in the image of God. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. But you come into the world with a sin nature, pursuing your own agenda, and then you are affected by the people around you who are doing the same thing. And God is at work to change us. God the workman is at work, making us this work of art. But that means that change must be a constant in the life of the one who belongs to Jesus, right? We should never be satisfied with where we are, never. We should always be asking ourselves, oh Lord, teach me. And losing, absolutely burying and losing forever the idea. (laughs) You don't teach old dogs new tricks. I'm just set in my ways. And God's not buying any of that. All right. So with all of that, I'm born into this world pursuing my own agenda. And I use my ability, my gifting, my my unique crafting by God, by nature. Because of sin, I use all of that to get what I want. And I refuse to use the gifts and abilities that God has given for the purpose for which he gave them when I'm not getting what I want. All right, so let me say that again. I've actually got it, I think, said a little bit more succinctly later. But now I just want you to get the idea. That I come into this world pursuing my own agenda, and so do you. And after I come to Christ, I still have the vestiges of the sin nature. Romans chapter 7, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, it's the very thing I do. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, that's us, man. Schizophrenic us. And I come into this world pursuing my own agenda. And then after I'm saved, I've still got all that hanging with me to pursue my own agenda, but I'm fearfully and wonderfully made and I'm made in the image of God and I've got all these abilities and this gifting, but I use that ability to get what I want. And I refuse to use those abilities when I don't get what I want. Or put another way, sin is using power to get what I want. Sin is using my ability, my power, my competency all of which came from who? 1 Corinthians 4.2, Paul rhetorically asks the question, what do you have that you did not receive? And the answer is to be nothing. But here as sinners, I steal what God has given for his purposes and I misappropriate it for my own purposes. So I use now these abilities to get what I want and I refuse to use them when I'm not getting what I want. Or, to put it another way, sin is using power to get what I want. Or, it's protesting when I don't get what I want. That's a pretty cool definition of sin, if I do say so myself. Sin is using the power, the ability that God has given me to get what I want. Or, I find myself protesting when I don't get what I want. So, let me pursue that a bit further. Your nature and my nature 
The fact that you're fearfully and wonderfully made, made in the image of God, and individually made with different giftings and all that means I have a particular way, an individualized way that I pursue my own agenda. So sin is using this power to get what I want, but you do it different than I do because you're made different than me. So the fact that we're fearfully and wonderfully made, hallelujah, let's celebrate, but here's what that means for sinners. We all got just different ways of getting to what we want. So you pursue it different than I do. Nature means you pursue your agenda rather than God's. Our sinful nature means we pursue our agenda rather than God's in particular, unique, individualized ways. And nurture means that you pursue and I pursue our own agenda in our unique, individualized, personalized ways. Now, that's why it's important for you to know the story of your life. What all has contributed to making me as messed up as I am? It's my nature. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. I've got particular abilities that God has given me, but my sin nature causes me to direct those toward my own ends. And I was raised in a particular family. And I was raised with particular people. That's the nurture part of it. So I express this desire to pursue my own agenda in particular ways that are affected by both my nature and my nurture. I've got to know what that is. I've got to know where I'm messed up so that those cracks in the mirror can be repaired. Now, how many people do you think have ever spent time thinking deeply about that? Mirror, mirror on the wall. Tell me why I'm so screwed up. (laughs) But I'm here to tell you it's the only way to change is to know what needs to be changed. But instead, you know, we just... (laughs) With this self-centered assumption, we go through life and go into our relationships figuring, at worst, I just need a little tweaking. At worst. I mean, this is what I've learned along the way, and these are all the great things I've learned along the way, and this is all the great stuff I've accomplished. And, you know, I mean, just look at me, you know? Look at me. And then there's you. And if it wasn't for you, and people like you, and some people's kids like you. And these some people's kids get married, and they have children, and as I said earlier, on it goes. So if sin is using power to get what I want and protesting when I don't get it, and we're made uniquely with these different abilities and all of that, then that means this. Not only do I do it differently than you, stay with me, all right, I'm going to get in trouble with this, but I'm convinced that men and women are messed up differently. Men and women are messed up. I'm not saying who's the more messed up gender as yet. I'm just... I'm just holding that intention for a bit, right? <laughs> but men and women use their, use their nature, use the way they're made in order to get what they want. That's what sinners do. So if 
if men, males and females are different, now I'm generalizing, okay. clearly that's true, at least it used to be, and we used to be able to know the difference and all that, but let's just assume, okay, just be nostalgic for a moment <laughs> for when you could do that. And men and women are made differently, but it also means men and women sin differently. That's what I'm saying, in general. Well, well how? I've invoked this word power. That sin is using power to get what I want and protesting when I don't get it. So think about males and females and think about the power that each of them possesses. The power that a man possesses is often physical power. And a man will often use physical power to get what he wants. He will sin in particular ways as a man sins, as a man uses his power. And so he might intimidate to get what he wants. He might intimidate his kids. He might intimidate his wife physically or vocally or visibly. But it's all designed to use the power at his disposal. The end game is always the same. Get what I want. And women tend to sin in particular ways. I have found this in, I know what I just said about men. And I know this about women because of interacting with women, particularly in counsel. And women tend to sin in particular ways. But it's not intimidating. It's not intimidating physically. It's females using the power at their disposal to get what they want. Now, what might that look like? I mean, for men, it was pretty easy for me to just go through that. Okay? Brute force. Brutes being brutes to get what they want. But what about the fairer gender, the fairer sex, women? How might they use power to get what they want? Well, it's not going to be through physical intimidation normally. It might be through what we say. And so Peter says, don't say so much. Did you know that's why Peter says that? The reason Peter says without words is because the tendency for a woman is to resort to the power she has, which will often be words. So often it will be words. And what is said, I hear this, and what is left unsaid. See, I might tell the truth, but not the whole truth. And I've got another word for that. It's called manipulation. And so the power at my disposal is to manipulate, to slide the truth, to tell you enough to get you to do what I want, but not tell you the whole thing. It might be sex. I mean, I know what the brute wants. And the brute wants sex in a brute sort of way. And as a woman, I have this power at my disposal to withhold that. Affection, physical affection. I might do that as well, sinfully. 
Now, do you all begin to see that we sin in, in different ways then? And those, what I've just described, are just the active ways. Using the power at my disposal, the power of a man is different than the power of a woman. And so she uses her power differently than the man does because she has d- different powers to use. But that's just what we actively each do. And then there's the protesting when I don't get it. What does that look like in your life? I want things and people to be a particular way. And I come into this world with the self-centered agenda because of sin. I want it to be the way I want it to be. I exert my power to get it done. But sometimes my power ain't enough. So try though I might to move the agenda in the direction I want to go, everybody's not cooperating. Get with it, people. Why can't these people in this house understand that I know the way this ought to go? And if it would go this way, it would be better for everybody. But you guys didn't get the memo. You guys can't get it through your thick skulls. And I haven't been able to make you do it. Use my power and all of its variations, though I have. I haven't been able to get you to do it. So I get frustrated and I protest. How do I protest? Well, if you're a man, you've got characteristic ways of protesting. Build a man cave. Retreat. I'm just not going to talk anymore. Fine. I give up. I throw up my hands. I'll stop trying. If you're a woman, how do you, how do you protest? One of the ways you protest, I mean, I've been talking to him for, Lord knows, I've been talking to him forever. I've been yapping and yapping and yapping, trying to get him to change, and he's not changing. So I'm not going to just keep yapping at him. I'm going to go yap to my girlfriend's. And to my mom. So that everybody knows I'm married to an idiot. So I'll talk to all of them about it as well. So I'm still, you know, I'm still talking, but now I've got another group of people to, to talk to about it. And if I'm, if I'm a woman, I'm protesting because I'm unhappy and everybody's going to know it. I am not going to be... I will not be joyful. I know, I know, rejoice in the Lord always and all of that stuff. And again I say rejoice, but Paul was not married. <laughs> and he was not married to my piece of work. So there's always an exception and I'm always it. Now, do you see, dear friends, how deeply this goes then? And how we must do an analysis of who we are. A deep analysis of who we are. Where I've come from. What I am by nature. Where I learn to sin in particular ways and to use my power, the power at my disposal in particular ways to get what I want. Where did I learn to do these things? Where did I learn to do this a particular way? And now here I am at age 53. Here I am at age 30, 
36. Here I am at wherever you are. And I've been carrying all that around unanalyzed. Alfred North Whitehead, I think it was, who said, the unexamined life is not worth living. And the unexamined Christian life is completely unbiblical. So I've got to analyze, where did I get this? And then you start thinking, now you've got to start thinking about your family. Where, where did I get this? Why do I do it that way? And you know what's so interesting? I mean, to me it's interesting. You can just humor me and act like it's interesting. What's interesting to me is people who have observed their families, observed their parents, and they say, I'm never going to be like that. And they're horrified when they find themselves like that. I'll never do that. I abhorred that about, you know, my dad or my mom or both. And I'll never do that. And then, sure enough, in their relationships, you start, you start seeing that. Now, I want to end with this, and then we'll continue over the next couple of weeks. So it's, you know, it, it can be an ugly thing to have to analyze who I am that way who I am by nature, what I've become by nurture, how I use my power to manipulate or by brute force or deceive or whatever it is. It can be very painful if you're going to take an honest look at yourself. So how can you do that? How can you take an honest look at yourself and go through the pain for that, sorry to be trite, but for the gain that we'll ultimately get out of that? Well, here's what I want to look at next week. Next week, I want to look at, and I would encourage you to, to read 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 4. 1 Corinthians 3 and 4. And I'm going, to, I'm going to borrow from a little booklet by Tim Keller. Some of you know who Tim Keller is. Tim Keller has a little booklet called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. And in that book, from 1 Corinthians 3 and 4, he does what I consider to be a masterful job of showing us how we can do the painful work of looking at ourselves and seeing ourselves as we truly are as long as we're secure in Jesus. As long as I'm secure in Jesus, now I have the freedom, I have the ability to look at myself as I truly am, sometimes in all of its ugliness. But because I'm secure in Jesus. And I want to show that to you the next week. In the meantime, I'd encourage you to read those two chapters and then I would also encourage you to think as deeply as you can about your characteristic ways of sinning, about the ways you use your power to get what you want or the ways in which you protest when you don't get what you want. Think about what those are and then try to think about, and then where did I get that, man? Where did that come from? Oh, my old man used to do that. Or my mom used to do that. And... Then we've got a basis now to begin working on getting that changed and getting those cracks in the mirror repaired, okay? Let's pray together. Father, thank you that your word penetrates to the heart and it exposes the thoughts and the intents of our heart. But Lord, thank you for that. Thank you that you have given us in your, with your spirit and in your word that you have given us a, an examination machine to see what we would not be able to see ourselves. 
We thank you, Lord, that you have given us your spirit that causes us to desire to see the truth about ourselves and to stop hiding it, to stop deceiving, to stop manipulating, to stop intimidating. Lord, your spirit has granted us that desire. And Lord, we ask you then to use these times together to cause that desire then to bear fruit, that in my life and in the lives of my brothers and sisters here, that we would take to heart what we are learning and that we would examine closely how we have been fearfully and wonderfully made and how our sin causes us to misappropriate the abilities that you have given us toward our own ends. And thereby, help us to change. Help us to change into the image of Jesus. Help us thereby to bring glory to you by reflecting your character back to you. And help us this week to begin that process. And we ask you to bring us back safely next Lord's Day. In Jesus' name, amen.